Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Citizens. Uh, it's good to be with you today. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, again, I want to echo what DC said. Uh, really want to welcome you to our community. And again, usually myself, some of our volunteers and our staff, we're hanging out outside. Uh, if you're looking for a faith community to plug into, uh, we would love to answer uh, any questions you have about Citizens um, and, and help you get plugged into our church. Uh, we are currently in a year-long sermon series uh, called Childlike Wonder, where we are preaching through every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a well-known children's Bible, and, and if you've been tracking with us from the beginning of this series, hopefully you're starting to, starting to see that the Bible isn't just this random collection of stories, uh, but that all of these stories are echoes of a bigger story about God and his love for humanity found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you've been following along, you know that uh, all the sermon titles uh, this year correspond uh, to, the, to their respective sermon titles in the book, uh, which is why you get titles like today, um, Daniel and the Scary Sleepover. Um, so cute. Um, it's really like I, whenever I prep my sermons, I always have, have the sermon title uh, really big up top. Hard to take myself seriously uh, when, when, I'm, when I'm preaching on Daniel and the Scary Sleepover, but um, I'm sure you can guess which story we're looking at today. Uh, we're going to look at Daniel and the Lion's Den. And uh, most of you know this story, especially if you've grown up in the church, you know, you know how this story goes. Uh, Daniel is a guy, he gets thrown into the lion's den for worshiping God. God shuts the mouths of the lions, and then Daniel walks out without a scratch. And the way this story is typically taught in Sunday school is, so go out into the world, be courageous like Daniel, and then no matter what happens, God is going to save you. You're going to walk out without a scratch. And, and, and I think it's a really unfortunate reading of this story. You know, I remember there were churches um, during the height of COVID who were using this very text to, to justify why they were going to continue to gather together. They said, as long as we're worshiping God, COVID can't touch us. You know, we're immune to COVID. You know, God's hand will shut the mouths of the lions. And, you know, and that's kind of the way this story has been taught. Um, and it, at least a lot of disillusionment because we all know if you've lived life long enough, sometimes you don't walk out of situations without a scratch. Sometimes there are enemies who are like lions who devour you. And being faithful to God doesn't always mean life gets any easier. You know, it's very interesting uh, the lion, the Daniel and the lion's den, it, it's such an iconic story. But when you actually study the passage itself, you realize that what happens in the lion's den isn't even the highlight of the story. It's actually, we, we actually don't hear about anything that happens inside the lion's den. You, you read that Daniel's thrown in, the stone is rolled over, the next morning the king comes and calls out and Daniel hasn't been eaten. You know, we don't actually know what goes on in the lion's den. And, and kind of we made this the center of the story, but what I hope to show you today is that the lion's den is really just the fruit of everything that comes before it, okay? So turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, and then we're going to jump down and read verses 16 to 23. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, and then 16 to 23. Uh, if you're following along on a mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and then it's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. This is the reading of God's word. 
it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for the charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing, now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So the king, uh, we'll jump down to verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, let me set the stage for us. Uh, the book of Daniel is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem. So you had these Babylonians who came in, they plundered the city, and they carried off uh, a whole bunch of Israelites into exile. And the first six chapters of the book of Daniel tells a series of stories about four of these Jewish captives, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're trying to figure out how to live in a land that's not their home. 
And not only is this land not their home, it's a land that's hostile to their God. And so the big underlying question in the book of Daniel is what does it look like to follow God faithfully in the midst of exile? And this question could not be more relevant to us today because in many ways, I believe we are living in modern day Babylon. We're living in a world that's not our home, that's increasingly resistant to the way of Jesus. And we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be the people of God in a city like Los Angeles in 2024, where the values of our city and the values of our culture oftentimes push up against the values of Jesus. How do we love and serve and seek the prosperity of Los Angeles without being swallowed up by Los Angeles? You know, if you visited our website or you've been to Intro to Citizens, uh, you know that this question is baked into the vision statement of our church. And the vision of our church, for those of you who don't know, is to be a city within a city, a community transformed by the gospel, living out the life of heaven here and now. And I want to hone in on that phrase, a city within a city to be the best citizens of Los Angeles while maintaining all of our distinctiveness as citizens of heaven. And this story in Daniel 6 really gets at the heart of what this means. In Daniel, we have a prime example of what it looks like to follow God in a city and in a time where following God is very difficult. And the first big thing I want to note before we jump in is that Daniel is not a pastor. He's not in vocational ministry. He has a secular job. He's a government official. You know, I think there's this really weird notion in the church that um, you have to be in full-time ministry in order to truly be effective or useful in the kingdom of God. Like, we, we always think the best Christians should go to seminary and become pastors, right? Like, someone, like one of your friends is really growing in the faith, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, hey, have you ever thought about being a pastor? Right? And we do this weird thing where we, we get these people who are movers and shakers in their industries and fields. Right? They are on the cutting edge of innovation and entrepreneurship. They're managing hundreds of people. But because we watched them lead a small group once really well, we're like, you should be a pastor. Like, you should really go to seminary. No. They should stay exactly where they are. Why do we try to take these people out of where God has placed them, where they are doing amazing work for the kingdom? And it's this kind of thinking that really cripples the church because it kind of uh, cultivates two really unhealthy paradigms. One is that it props up pastors as being the spiritual elites, right? So pastors are doing God's work, and then everyone else is doing regular work, right? And so ministry becomes this thing that's only done by the professionals, and then everyone else is just a spectator. But the second unhealthy paradigm that this kind of cultivates is that God is only moving in the church, right? So you're only being a light in the world when you're at church or you're doing church things. And it creates this divide between the sacred and the secular where you have your spiritual life on one side, and then you have your family life your school life, your relationships, your work life, the other, and the two never intersect. The two don't impact one another. You know, I'm glad DC mentioned it in the announcements today, but people ask me all the time, why do you all do so many happy hours? 
Why do you do things like dumpling making workshops and ceramics workshops? Why do you do finance seminars? Why do you do pop-up markets? Why not just do more Bible studies and prayer gatherings? And that question in and of itself shows you how much we've created this divide between sacred and secular, that somehow God is only present when we're doing religious activities. No. God is everywhere. And we need to recover a faith that is more holistic, where we begin to invite God into everything we do, where we understand that God is as present at the business meeting as he is at the prayer meeting. You know, I love that the book of Daniel holds up a person who is in the secular workforce and says, this is the example of what it means to be a light in the world. Like, this is the example of how to be a city on a hill. This is the example of how to be faithful in the midst of exile. And so I want to start there so that we know that this calling to be a light in the world is not just for people who work in the church. It's for everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Now, what does that look like practically? Right? What does that look like for the teacher, the student, the lawyer, the restaurant owner doing life in the city? And I think this story gives us two really important principles around how Christians ought to live in the world. And if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about these two principles. Those principles are excellence and resistance, okay? Excellence and resistance, and then we're going to talk about how to foster, how to become a people marked by excellence and resistance. First, excellence. When you read this story, the first thing you notice is that Daniel wasn't just any government official. We read that he was the best government official. Verse 3 says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. In some translations, that phrase exceptional qualities is translated an excellent spirit. Part of being a light in the world is doing things with excellence. It's very interesting, right? Whenever someone talks about excellence in the church, people get really uncomfortable because they're like, Jason, it's not about excellence. It's about the heart. It's the heart that really counts. But it's like, why do we always have to separate the two? Why shouldn't we seek to do our jobs well? Why shouldn't we seek to be the best leader, the best teacher, the best artist we can be? I think a lot of times we use Christianity as an excuse for mediocrity. You know, when I see a movie like God's Not Dead on Pure Flix, I don't, I don't know if you know what Pure Flix is. I hope you don't, okay? But if you see a movie like that, I really think God is in heaven being like, I'm not claiming that. that like, that's not, that doesn't represent me. Why is it that anytime a, an artist is Christian, we're like, they're pretty good for a Christian artist? Why is it that anytime a, a, someone who's Christian put, like, films a movie or does something, we say things like, that's not bad for a Christian? We have this mindset that Christian things are bad, and that's a problem. Why do we expect less from Christians? Why can't we expect more? In 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 
This is a church that did everything with a spirit of excellence, not for excellence sake, but because they understood that everything they did, they were doing it unto the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One of the best advertisements for the kingdom of God is someone who pursues excellence in their craft. You know, uh, I play guitar and I change my guitar strings pretty regularly. It's like become this mindless task I do usually about once a month and I can do it anywhere. I can usually, I turn something on on Netflix and grab my guitar, start, start changing it and I can do it pretty mindlessly, right? I, and I can usually uh, get, to, get it to where I want it to be every time. It's not really an exact science. I just kind of like take my time, usually gets there. Imagine if one day John Mayer knocks on my door and he says, hey, I hear you're good at changing guitar strings. Change my guitar strings for me. I guarantee you, I'm not watching Netflix while changing his guitar strings. I'm going to set up those guitar strings. I'm going to measure them out perfectly so they're all exactly the same length. I'm gonna make sure they're wound perfectly if there's a knot, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to cut them to perfect lengths. I'm going to polish and clean the fretboard. I'm going to clean the strings. I'm going to give the guitar back to John Mayer in better shape than I got it. The same exact task approached completely differently because of who I'm doing it for. What if every time you made a drink for someone at the coffee shop you worked at, you treated it as though you were going to do it for God? as though God were gonna take that first drink? What if every time you created an Excel sheet at work, you treated it like you were doing it for God? What if every time you set up a chair in this auditorium, you treated it as though the first person who was gonna sit on that chair was God? You see, it doesn't have to be a grand task for you to pursue excellence. You pursue excellence because God deserves our best. Now hear me when I say this. I'm not saying you have to be the best. I'm saying we're called to bring our best. There's a difference. And this is an important distinction because excellence we know can become an idol. Okay, we got a room full of Asian Americans here. Okay, you're like excellence, yes, I'll do it. Right? And when you seek excellence for excellence sake, that's where you get jealousy. That's where you get competition, anger, insecurity. When you start to equate excellence with success or perfection. What we're talking about here is not success. What we're talking about is stewardship. How are you handling that which God has given to you? The opportunities, the gifts, the anointing, the authority, the people who've been entrusted to your care. Are you someone who just does the bare minimum? Are you someone who comes unprepared to meetings at work? Are you the one who only cares about something if a lot of people are watching? Or are you someone who brings their best to everything they do? Who takes seriously every responsibility and task given to them, big or small, because they understand they're doing it unto the Lord. But it's not just excellence in our craft 
Okay, a lot of people are excellent in their craft. It's also excellence in character. In the very next verse, we read that Daniel wasn't just known for his administrative and leadership abilities. He was known for his integrity and his trustworthiness. In verse 4, we read, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And this was unheard of because everyone assumed for a guy to get to where Daniel was, he must have had. He must have had to make some questionable decisions. He must have some questionable ethics. He must have had to stab some people in the back, run some people over. And yet they couldn't find anything on him. He was utterly trustworthy. He was the same person in private as he was in public. And that made Daniel stand out. Do you want to talk about being a light? When I think about spaces like entertainment, and fashion, and healthcare, these spaces that can often be extremely toxic, the best witness of the kingdom of God just might be people who are honest, kind, who show up for others, who exemplify godly character. And so let me ask you all a question. How do your colleagues and peers perceive you? Would they describe you as someone who pursues excellence in your craft and in your character? Would they describe you as someone who works hard, who's responsible, who's trustworthy, who walks with integrity? Because these things are attractive and they testify to the character of God. I love this quote by Madeline Lengel. And she says this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So the first way in which Christians can be a light in the world is that we become a people marked by excellence. But the second way is that we become a people marked by resistance. And you have to hold the two in tension because sometimes we feel like in order to be excellent, we have to become like the world. We have to basically go with the cultural stream. We have to do what everyone in the world is doing in order to be excellent. But Jesus in John 15 is very clear when he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Part of what comes with living in exile is that there are moments when you will be confronted with the reality that this is not your home, where the values of your city will inevitably clash with the values of Jesus. Meaning no matter how excellent you are, what people say about you, how above reproach you are, no matter what a great person you are, there is no scenario in which you can follow Jesus and not at some point find yourself in conflict with the world. And when you think about Jesus' life and ministry, right? All he did in his life was love people, serve people, heal the sick, feed the hungry. All he did was walk with integrity, and yet people hated him. 
Daniel was an excellent leader. He lived his life above reproach, nothing corrupt about him, and yet people hated him. And in the story, these people, they come up with this plan to get King Darius to sign an edict that says anyone who prays to any God or human being other than him during the next 30 days will be thrown into the lion's den. And I love how Daniel responds to this edict. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. A decree gets published that you're not allowed to pray to anyone but King Darius for the next 30 days, and if you do, you'll get thrown into a lion's den. And what's the first thing Daniel does? He gets down on his knees and he prays. He resists. He knows he will probably lose his job. He knows this is probably his reputation. He knows people are going to talk about him. He knows he's probably going to get himself killed. And yet it's this heart. It's this act of resistance that says, whatever the consequences, I'm going with God. You see, in that moment, Daniel's position didn't matter because his position did not define him. What defined him was his relationship with God. And at some point, he had to make a choice. Who will I choose to follow? Who will I choose to trust? Every day, you and I are confronted with that question. Who will you follow? Who will you trust? When you think about how you're going to raise your kids, where you're going to live, where you're going to work, what you're going to do, what decisions you're going to make, what relationships you're going to pursue, you're going to be confronted with that question. Who will you trust? Who will you follow? And oftentimes, following Jesus will come with consequences. Sometimes it will mean you are hated. Sometimes it will mean you don't get the promotion. Sometimes it will mean you have to let go of a relationship. Sometimes it will mean you will lose productivity. You know, I was talking to a friend recently who passed up on literally the most amazing job offer, job offer of his dreams, Because the one requirement for this job was that he would have to work every single Sunday. And not in a legalistic way, but he said, you know, Jason, this past year I really embraced Sabbath as a practice. I've seen it transform my life, my emotional well-being, my spiritual well-being, my relationship with God is so much better because I feel like I need that one day a week where I'm not doing and achieving and performing and it's been so great for me. And he says, and yet, and still, it was so hard. It was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. So they paid well. I've been looking for a job for six months. Job responsibilities were right in my wheelhouse. But he said at some point, he had to ask himself the question, who do you trust? Who will you follow? Who do you believe will provide for your needs? Now this story begs the question, how do we then, like Daniel, become a people marked by excellence and resistance. People who are the best earthly citizens and yet people who never lose their distinctiveness as citizens of heaven, okay? And this is the most important part of the sermon. If you weren't listening at all up to this point, that's okay. This is the most important part. 
If you miss this part, you will miss everything. Typically, when you hear someone say, we need to be a people marked by excellence and resistance, the underlying message is always, try harder, be better, man up, suck it up, fight sin. And I don't know about you, but that can inspire you for a moment. But over time, that is a heavy yoke that we cannot bear. We had our men's ministry launch yesterday, which was amazing. We had about 80 men from our community gathered together, representing all different life stages in the church. And I, I loved being together, and, and, and I have great hopes for our men's ministry. But I was debriefing with a friend of mine after it, and one of the discussion questions in our small groups was, what is your vision for your life? That was a question we asked all the men to answer. What is your vision for your life? And he told me, if I'm honest, I was really anxious answering that question because I started giving my answer and I said, well, I want to be a great husband. I want to be the type of dad my kids are proud of. I want to actually get to a place in my career and work hard enough so my wife doesn't have to work, so my kids are provided for and their kids are provided for so that they don't have to worry about their finances. I want to make sure we have enough for retirement. But not only that, man, I realize I'm struggling with these things. I want to get more involved in the church. I want to do more for the city and I want to be involved in acts of social justice. I want to be a mentor to older people. And he said in real time, he started to feel crushed by the weight of his own expectations for himself. He was like, how am I going to do that? I got to be this like great Christian. I got to be excellent in my workplace. I got to be excellent at home. And you see, sometimes the way we even talk about excellence and resistance is two sides of the same coin. We say, you know what? I'm not going to care as much about what I'm doing at work so that I could go home and be the best dad I can possibly be. Two sides of the same coin. It's still about us doing it's still about us. It's still reliant on us. And maybe this is how some of you are feeling as well. You're like, excellence. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to put food on the table. Excellence. And a lot of times when you read this story, the thought that comes to mind is, was Daniel just like a stellar human being? Was he just exceptional? Did he just have something that other people lacked? Did he just have something that gave him this supernatural ability to not only be excellent in his work, but to be fearless in the face of resistance? No. The only thing Daniel had was a deep awareness that he could do nothing without God. When his enemies came for him and the lion's den loomed over him, Daniel didn't rely on his strength. He did what he'd always done. He went to the secret place. He ran to the arms of his father. Two details I want you to notice when Daniel begins to pray in verse 10. It says, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. 
whatever type of person Daniel was, it was the result of Daniel going to the secret place over and over and over again. You know, a lot of people, when they read this story, they think Daniel was a young boy. Did you know Daniel was probably around 80 years old when this story happens? This guy is at the end of his life. And so when it says he got down on his knees and prayed as he had done before, what this is saying is that throughout his life, in every circumstance, whenever things happened, the first place he went was into the Father's presence. He went to the secret place. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing I want you to notice is what Daniel prays. We read that Daniel gave thanks to God. Now, I want you to think about this. That is a weird prayer to pray in that moment. Like, I'm reading this, I'm like, wait, why is that the prayer there? The law has just come down that's going to get you fired from your job and get you thrown into a den of lions. Why is Daniel's prayer not, Lord, help me? Lord, save me. Lord, where are you? And yet it says, he got down on his knees and gave thanks to God. Daniel's first move in this moment of fear and uncertainty is to say, thank you. Thank you. Which tells you that Daniel has a completely different paradigm of life. His life is not marked by what he does or what he can do, but by what has been done for him. That's why his first move is thank you. Daniel understands that it is God's grace that has always sustained him and will continue to sustain him. I imagine when he became the top-ranking government official, he got down on his knees and he said, thank you. And now as the lion's den looms before him, he gets down on his knees and he says, thank you. When our loved one gets healed of cancer, thank you. If they don't, thank you. When we marry the person of our dreams, thank you. God has us in a season of singleness, thank you. When God blesses us with the child we've been waiting for, thank you. When he doesn't, thank you. That is the heart posture of every follower of Jesus. Thank you. Daniel's defining characteristic is that he is a man who has stayed close to God his entire life and now lives every moment in God's goodness and his love. And so the moral of this story is not go be like Daniel and be excellent and be courageous. The moral of this story is stay close to God, the source of all life, joy, peace, and satisfaction. Let God love you unconditionally. And when you do that, the inevitable result will be a life marked by excellence and resistance. You see, we always get the order mixed up. We think, let me be excellent. Let me be excellent for you, God. Let me resist temptation. Let me do everything you say, God, and then he will love me. No, that's not what we see here. We go to the secret place. We sit in God's presence and receive the love God already has for us, and that leads to a life of true excellence and true resistance. You know why? When you live in that love, you can be excellent without striving, 
without clawing your way to the top. You can be excellent without any insecurity or jealousy or competition because you know you already have everything you need in Christ. You can resist temptation because you know that anything the devil or the enemy or the world or your flesh can offer you, you get that a hundredfold in the presence of God. That love you're looking for, that acceptance, that validation you're looking for, you can get in the presence of God. You see, when you learn how to go to the secret place, when you learn to see your entire life as, as, as a gift of God's grace, it changes the way you view everything. There's nothing to prove. There's no one to impress. All you are is one who receives God's sustaining life. And Daniel had this assurance. And if he had this assurance, how much more should we have that assurance living on this side of the cross? You see, Jesus also lived a life of absolute integrity. There was not one thing corrupt about Jesus. He resisted every temptation thrown at him. In the wilderness, the de devil came to him and said, save yourself, deny God, preserve yourself. And yet Jesus resisted every temptation because he stayed close to his father. And yet, unlike Daniel, when Jesus walked into the lion's den, God didn't shut the mouths of the lions. Jesus who was God incarnate, perfect in every way, was completely devoured and ripped apart. But friends, the good news is that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And what this means is that in the face of any lion's den you and I will face in this life, we can say thank you. Thank you. No matter what's facing you right now, no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what you're shouldering in your life right now, today, you can say thank you. Because this same God who willingly laid down his life for us is sustaining and loving us for all of eternity. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this story. Lord, oftentimes we wonder, what does it mean for us to live as a follower of Jesus in this city, in our workplace, in our home? What does it mean to be a light? And so much of our time is focused on what we're gonna go and do. Like we have to get out there and do X, Y, and Z. But I imagine that for many of us, we have not gotten, yet gotten to a place where we've been able to simply sit and receive the love you have for us in Christ. And so, so much of what we do in the world, so much of what we do at church, so much of it is us still trying to earn and achieve and perform. And so God, as much as we would love for citizens to be a group of people who are on fire for you, who go out and embody the love of Christ in all the spaces they inhabit, 
First and foremost, I pray that we would be a church that understands what it means to be children, to simply receive, to let, to let you love us, to sit in your presence and experience the joy, peace, and the satisfaction you so freely offer us in your Son. We thank you for this word today. We ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to press your love upon our hearts. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.